You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, here we go again. Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by exodus trail cameras if you haven't already take a moment and go check out exodusoutdoorgear.com today we have a bs session a very good bs session with mr craig pearlberg we're going to talk about whitetail hunting we're going to talk about elk hunting we're going to talk about mule deer hunting and we're going to talk about craig's love for the outdoors how he kind of got involved in the outdoors who his mentors were and uh, all that good kind of solid stuff that holds a good quality (laughs) BS session in place and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. A couple quick things I want to talk about though. Number one, I'm mad. I haven't had the opportunity to go mushroom hunting yet. Um, I was driving around public land after I picked up my kids from daycare and what do I see walking out of the woods is some dude with like two potato sacks full of mushrooms and uh, so we got thousands of acres of a couple thousand acres of public ground around where I live and uh, there are cars parked all over the place looking for those those mushrooms and I'm telling you man they're delicious so I got to get out I, 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 I need to walk the walk what I'm getting at go find some mushrooms so I can eat them uh, and uh, that's it really that's it just go find them the next thing is if you haven't already you need to take advantage of the nine finger discount uh, when it comes to becoming a member of the quality deer management association and uh, without getting into too much crazy detail um, the QDMA is offering a limited time one-year membership for only $25 all you have to do is enter the promo code nine finger that's the number nine followed by the word finger 
all right, nine finger and uh, your annual membership to become a member of the QDMA goes from $35 to $25. So it's a $10 discount. All right, last but not least, Ozonics. And you know, you've heard, you've heard me talk about Ozonics before, how O3 works, how ozone works uh, in regards to how it uh, eliminates odors and all that good stuff. But I want to share with you a really good kind of, it wasn't the aha moment that made me believe in Ozonics, but it's one of them. Right, I I think my Ozonics moment was just a a group of all these little moments that built up to me really trusting and believing in this product. And one of them was, it was one of those high pressure days. Right, uh, a cold front has had just moved through, and typically, I don't know about you guys, but whenever you rattle, you see all these deer come in downwind to check out what. You know what that noise was what what made that noise where's where are these deer at and you know before I started using ozonics you would you you would rattle and you wouldn't think that you would be missing out on anything right because further downwind maybe a deer uh, you didn't see this buck that came downwind to investigate but uh, it busted you and uh, it ran away and you didn't even know it now this isn't a big buck story, but since I had started using Ozonics and I started to call, I had seen, I would see more deer after calling sequences because once they would get downwind of me in a tree with an Ozonics, I rattle or I call or I grunt, you know, whatever. And they come downwind, they J hook in to the position and they come to investigate closer and closer and closer and they're not busting me downwind. So therefore, uh, I'm not necessarily having more deer come within shooting range of me, but I am seeing more deer and that allows me to make more adjustments. And, you know, long story short, it, it keeps more deer in my area and it keeps them from busting me and going crazy downwind, like snorting and wheezing and alerting all of the other um, uh, deer in the woods. So uh, just another kind and, and, you know, all those examples kind of add up to, you know, me believing in that product, you know, so you, you have you have one, two, three, four, five of those in a season. You're seeing five sits worth of deer and uh, you just you start to realize that, hey, something is making the deer not run away. They're not spooked. Um, and uh, that's definitely Ozonics. So here's the deal with Ozonics. If you purchase an HR230 or an HR300, you will receive a free dry wash bag. And that's the bag that you put your clothes in and you use your Ozonics to, you know, basically wash it with O3 and that kills all of the uh, the bacteria that's on your clothing making your clothing scent free. So, you must first put both items in the cart, the HR unit, uh, the HR230 or the HR300 and the dry wash bag as well. And then apply the discount code and that discount code is 9FC 18. So that will after you apply that discount code, the 
dry wash bag will appear as free. So uh, purchase an HR230 or an HR300, enter, um, and you add the dry wash bag to your cart, enter the discount code 9FC18, and your dry wash bag will be free. So another good deal for or from Ozonic. So take advantage of that, guys. Uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in uh, ozone technology. Uh, you should too. So enough of that. We got a podcast with Craig Pearlberg today. It's a badass podcast. Let's go ahead and get right into it. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Craig Pearlberg. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Dan. How about yourself? You know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm disappointed because my schedule is really busy right now i got just like a lot of family activities so i haven't been out uh to find any mushrooms yet this year have you have you gone out do you go out ever looking for mushrooms yeah we do usually go out every year and same thing going on here i recently started a new job a few months ago and it's been it's been a little busy you know just getting trained up and everything and have certainly been missing out on that i can't wait to get out and hopefully find some mushrooms here soon so let's see here how old are you i am 24 years old 24 years old okay now before we get into today's podcast which is just going to be a a bs session why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what do you do for a living yeah so i was born and raised in um, southeast wisconsin and do a lot of hunting in um, pretty much all over the state and I work for a telecommunications contractor. Uh, one of our biggest uh, clients is the Green Bay Packers. Um, I'm also the media coordinator for the Packers as well. So come game day, I'm there pretty much Thursday through Sunday or Monday, whatever day the game is, and getting all the networks that come in, whether it's Fox, CBS, NBC, uh, ESPN, getting them all set up with their cameras and audio and so forth. So. Whoa. Looking forward to that this year. Yeah, I just started out this year with that. I have a little bit of background in that in that industry, but it's going to be exciting. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I know a guy who is a cameraman for all of the home Kansas City Royals baseball games. Um, so basically, all he does is run a camera, and you know he he pans to like babies and during you know between innings or, or hot chicks, you know, drinking beer, what, you know, whatever, whatever they do. But what, so how did you run into that job? That sounds like, I mean, just the title alone sounds like a job that needs years of experience. Yeah. Um, the company that I work for has, they've been, um, working in Lambo field for uh, 25 years or so and sort of interviewed for the position uh, also been working, uh, game day operations there throughout college. Oh, okay. So I had a little bit of, little bit, a little bit of background going in and, uh, they gave me a shot and, um, hoping that I can knock it out, out of the park for them. That's awesome. So when mm-hmm. the, when the game is being played, do you get, uh, I mean, do you have field access? Are you down on the field right where it's happening? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If, if anything were to go wrong with any of the, any of the circuits and, connections that are required by the networks i would have to be there it's kind of like a fire drill at times but right so we're just there to make make it a smooth so what did you go to college for 
funny story. I actually went to college for finance and I worked in the finance field for two years and it, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. I'm more, I like to work with my hands a little bit more, more of a get up and go kind of worker. Nice. Cool. Well, that's a very interesting job. So do you, you work throughout the weekend, uh, for at least for home games. So what do you, what does your job entail during the week? During the week, it's during the season. It's pretty much uh, getting all the all the networks connections set up before they even come into town. Hopefully, it's ideal that they'll send us a request and we'll get it all set up for them. And that that way, once they get to the stadium, all they have to do is connect, and everything should be should be dialed in. Um, it is during the away games. We don't really have to have to do all too much. Uh, we get kind of a break. We we don't have to be there Saturday, Sunday, usually. But yeah, during the week it's it's pretty hectic with requests coming in and just all the logistics of where they park their park their big buses and trucks and nice. you know that's crazy all that man. good stuff. That's crazy. Well, cool yeah, man. It's, sounds it's like unique. You, yeah. Sounds like you have a pretty fun job. Yeah, yeah, it's a unique job, and I'm looking forward to getting it done this year cool man all right well we're not here to talk about your job uh we, exactly <laughs> we're here to talk about the outdoors and hunting and all that stuff and we had a, a little bit of a com- uh, conversation about you know potentially writing for the blog on the on the podcast and uh, or on the uh, sportsman's nation but then you know we just got to chatting and it sounds to me like and i was like hey man why don't you just come on the podcast and let's bullshit for an hour and then you sent me some pictures right uh, you sent me a picture of a giant mule deer. You sent me a picture of a giant elk. Yeah. You sent me a picture of a giant muskie, a giant northern, uh, and a giant walleye. And that buck that in, in velvet looks like it's it was going to be giant as well. So, Minnesota, or uh, excuse me, Wisconsin is where you live. Uh, is everything that you do giant? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> in the past four years I've been extremely lucky in that I've been able to hook into and chase some massive animals and extremely thankful for that. And it's definitely has not always been, always been large. Right. Right. I hear that. Now let's go back a ways. All right. To the very beginning. And, um, how old were you? I mean, do you have an early memory what is your earliest outdoor memory memory that you uh that you can think of right now yeah i mean when i was i think it was around 10 years old uh we have uh, some land up in northern wisconsin and we have your your standard uh, deer camp that happens every year during rifle season and when i was 10 years old my dad convinced my mom that all the guys up there were they were good enough for a 10 year old to be around. So I don't know if she was up there, she would have agreed as well. But, um, I was 10 years old. My, I had my first deer camp up in Northern Wisconsin. Um, probably a camp of about 20 guys at the time between uh, grandpas, great uncles, uncles, cousins, uh, you name it. And in Wisconsin at that time, you had to be 12 years old to hunt with a rifle to deer hunt. And so I just sat on the stand with my dad, uh, just really fell in love with being out in the middle of nowhere right. and seeing some deer come by. It was, it was just pretty tough to beat. And from then it was, I fell in love from then on. 
So your dad kind of opened the door and said, Hey, let me show you a couple things. And then from that point on, you just kind of, you, you fell in love with it all. Absolutely. So was your dad kind of your biggest mentor growing up? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely from a young age, he was a big mentor, um, getting me into hunting, keeping me interested, taking me hunting. I mean, those are all, those are priceless. I had some buddies growing up that their dads just didn't hunt. Not, there's nothing wrong with that. They didn't hunt. So it took them a while to get into it. And it is an expensive hobby to get into. Yeah. So for them to accumulate all the gear and everything just to get out there um, is tough. But yeah, my dad, and then growing up, all my uncles and uh, eventually friends and in college, met a lot of great buddies, gave me the opportunity to hunt in some great places, but had some, been lucky enough to have some great mentors um, for hunting and fishing throughout my life. So, uh, hunting and fishing were kind of the, the go-to things for you to do like throughout your youth. Yep. I I also played uh, a little bit of sports too. I did, um, basketball and baseball and golf in high school and played a little bit of baseball in college as well, but gave up after one year, um, of college baseball wasn't having as much fun as I thought it would. And it ate up a lot of time for me to be sitting in a tree stand and fish. So, um, decided to part ways with that, but you got to have your priorities. You got to have your priorities. Exactly. So growing up, um, I know for me, when I, I, I got into fishing, camping and hunting, um, somewhere around 14 years old, and maybe a, maybe a year younger or something, and, and I was really gung-ho about it. I enjoyed going, and then all of a sudden, I hit high school, and then all the extra stuff kind of pushed hunting. You know, I wasn't obsessed with it like I am now. Did, did that kind of happen for you? Like, you got into high school, and it kind of took a back seat, or were you still gung-ho about hunting and fishing all the way through high school? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually went through almost an identical sort of transition there from, you know, eager 10 to 12-year-old kid getting to go every year, you know, and it, just looking forward to it, ecstatic about it almost every day. And then once you hit high school, you're right, other things do start to take over. You have sports, all your schooling, all the, your social life and everything. Yep. And... Once I got into college, it definitely started to creep back in and I gained some access to some awesome property and saw some incredible whitetails bow hunting and that just got me that got me right back in the saddle. Yeah. It's crazy because like my my college days I don't hard. I didn't hardly hunt at all. I may have gone back a couple times. Um, I did do fishing. Um, I did some pheasant hunting, but you know, I really didn't get back into bow hunting until like four years after college, uh, like two, uh, when I was 26. So I took kind of a big hiatus there and, um, my priorities were all screwed up. Like I didn't even know what I wanted to do except, you know, drink beer and chase women. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. No so, doubt about it. So you go to college and this is, this is something I like to ask all the guys who, you know, were in college or, or, or are in college or were, you know, recently out of college, you know, college 
if you do it right, you got to do, you got to spend some time studying, you know, you gotta, some, sometimes guys have part-time jobs. How did you balance college, college life and hunting, uh, you know, in that time frame? Yeah. Um, I mean, like I had mentioned before my freshman year, uh, I played baseball and it was extremely hands-on. It was year round. Um, the only break we really got from it was our winter break that we had. And even then they wanted us to stick on a regimen and everything. I probably got out about four or five times bow hunting right. just cause it was so tough with the schedule, the classes and everything. Um, as soon as I got to my sophomore and junior and senior year, I was, I was balancing my social life, my classes, and then just really trying to get out in the woods as much as I could. Right. You know, in the early spring, I was out there scouting. Um, even I would make trips back up from southeastern Wisconsin where I had lived um, during the summers up into Green Bay um, just, to, just to look. You know, you just, it's awesome just to walk on the property again and, and see it because and, every time you go, you see new things yeah. and see some deer. Um, but yeah, I just I really tried to just keep it in front of mind at all times and really focus on trying to get out in the woods right. and become a better hunter. Right. So, you know, when, when you were in college, uh, how far away was college from, uh, the, your main hunting properties? I had about a 15, 20 minute drive. It was, I mean, you couldn't draw it up any better. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I was like two hours away. So, uh, or yeah, two, that's yeah, tough. Yeah. So, and, and it wasn't, wasn't too bad because I really wasn't into it at that point in my life. But, um, so you're only 25 minutes away. So you were, you were really able to go whenever you wanted. Now growing up and all through high school and college was, um, this was on your, on a, on a family farm or did you, uh, kind of interweave public ground hunting or, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I always say the whitetail gods were, were definitely smiling down on me the day I got access to this property. It was our first day uh, at college. We they kind of bust all the freshmen out to different volunteer opportunity venues. Um, it was probably like 25 students went to a different uh, location, and I happened to go to um, a national conservation agency, one of the oldest in the country, actually called the Isaac Walton League. Okay. And they have a really cool property uh, near De Pere, Wisconsin. It's an 80-acre property, and it has um, a pole barn on it, just with lawnmowers and a nice little, little dining area and gathering area for events that they hold. It has two fishing ponds out there that they hold events for disabled children, veterans. Um, and they have walking trails all throughout. And uh, there's actually, it's called Osprey Point, And there's a, probably about an 80 foot tall pole with a platform on top of it. And there's an osprey that comes there every year and nests. Oh, sweet. And <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's really just an incredible property. Uh, and they do a lot of great things for the community. So I got out there, we did some volunteer work and I got to talking to one of the older leaders out there and 
uh, he said, yeah, you're, you're doing great work today. He said, are you a bow hunter by chance? And the light bulb just went off. I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, why don't you come over here with me? And he was, he was showing me a map of, um, property that's, like I said, 15 minutes away and that he'd go walk it with me. And he said, yeah, as long as you, if you become a member of the Isaac Walton league here and, um, cut the walking trails, just mow the walking trails and, um, any other work that really needs to get done, help out in some of the events. You get like 15 hours of volunteer work in a year. You can hunt there as much as you want. There's no one else out there right now on a 40-acre plot. So that's how that came to be, and it was it is an incredible property. So let's talk about that, right? I mean, the first thing that when, when I hear like park or um, a piece of property that's owned by some kind of uh, – the Isaac Walton League, let's just say, right? I mean, it sounds to me like nobody hunts this property. It's going to be primo. Uh, so when you when you went out there for the first time, I mean, were you lucky? I mean, were you optimistic? Or how did, I mean, were there, long story short, were there big bucks on this property or running around it? Yes. <laughs> yes, there were. And are. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, it. yes, it was. It was just, I mean, it was a dream come true, really. We get out there, and we start walking the property, and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing so many rubs and scrapes, and I'm just drooling, and the the older gentleman who was walking me out there, he's like, oh, there's a scrape, there's a rub, yep, there's a stand spot for you, there's bedding, there's food, water. I mean, it was it really as good as it gets. Yeah. So then with, you know, so the, your only job was – you volunteer some time up keeping some, some walking trails on that property and you get to hunt it. Yeah. That and helping out at some of the events that they hold and, um, just being a good, a good representative of the organization. And I get to hunt. Absolutely. That was, that was the condition. Wow. That's a big motivating factor. What was the, what was the property itself? Like describe, uh, describe the terrain for us. Yeah. So, about 15 acres was bedding, I would say. Ten of those acres were tag alders and uh, extremely difficult to walk through uh, if you didn't have rubber boots. I mean, it's prime big buck bedding area, just a little sanctuary for them. And then five of those other 15 acres was um, just some switchgrass that was pretty mowed down um, in the winter and everything. Deer like to bed in there early fall. Right. And then another 30 acres was hardwoods, but, but it was sort of lowland hardwoods at the same time. If we had a lot of rain, it would get flooded a little bit. Uh, nothing here. I mean, you could walk through with rubber boots fine, but it was loud to get to if you wanted to, if you want to stick a stand in there. Right. And then there was an, a ridge. And when I say ridge, it's not like a, it was a pretty small ridge. It was probably like 10 feet above the above the elevation of the bedding area and those lower areas in the hardwoods and that ridge uh, ran pretty much through the, the whole property. So that was a really nice runway runway for those deer. Um, but yeah, they love to just run right on those edges of the swamps and tried to, tried to keep my nose out of those bedding areas as much as possible. And it was, it was fun in there. So what was, what was the neighboring properties like? I mean, were they privately owned? Were they bigger uh, parcels? I mean, 80 acres is 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 
getting to that where you're going to have deer bed on that property and eat on that property and probably live their whole life on that property. You know, I'd, I'd obviously have to see a map of it, but I mean, was, right. were the surrounding properties, you know, managed hunting properties as well or public ground or how'd that work? This is where it gets even better actually. So the only thing that I would say there was about, there's probably about 500 acres in this whole area and it's split right down the middle by a mountain bike trail. Okay. And I mean, this trail is probably 10 yards across. So on the left side, that's going to be the north side. It is all sanctuary that cannot be touched. It's for, it's for walking trails. There's walking trails cut throughout. It's for um, foot traffic only mm-hmm. in the, in the woods to the left, to the north of that mountain bike trail. And then on the right side of that mountain bike trail is all private owned, um, 40 acre parcels until the end. So, I mean, there, there was, it was uh, as about as low pressured of an area, um, for Green Bay, Wisconsin, as you can get, I would think that I've, that I've personally come across. So you just basically won the lottery, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. It was, <laughs> it's unbelievable. All right. <laughs> There's so, no doubt. so let's talk about this. I mean, so obviously you're thinking in your head, oh, my God, this is going to be awesome. Did you instantly grab trail cameras and get them out on this property to see what was out there? Yep. That next weekend after I had gotten permission, I didn't really have any of my bow hunting stuff up in Green Bay. So I drove back home and had to had to pull my dad's arm a little bit about grabbing some of his trail cameras. So I got two up there and then got my climbing stand got my bow, everything, all my clothes, got them all washed up and as scent free as possible and pretty much hopped right to it. So this, uh, what time of the year was it when you got access to this property? Our first week, um, our first week at school was, had to have been end of August, I believe. And it was, so it was right there beginning of September. Okay. I got access to it. All right. So then did you, what did you do? I mean, with the season fast approaching, did you take time and really go in and scout it? Or were you thinking that, you know, because it was so close to the actual season, you were just going to go in kind of run and gun style hunt and, and hunt and scout at the same time. Yeah. My, my initial thought was maybe I'll go in and scout, but I would I didn't want to bust anything out of there. Cause I really didn't know the property. I was, just in awe when I did that initial walkthrough. Um, but I didn't know it like I was comfortable um, to walk in there. And no, I'm not going to disturb um, as much as. And so I just went ahead and did the running gun tactic. I went in on opening morning and I just kind of stuck on the outskirts, man. I didn't know how deep I could go, where to really go. And I stuck on the outskirts and just tried to tried to watch for deer movement to see if I could get any sort of idea of where they were coming from, heading to, and so forth. Right. A kind of an observation set. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So what did you see those first couple hunts on this farm? Were you happy or were you, uh, maybe they're not moving yet? Yeah, I didn't really see all too much right away. Um, at that point of my life, my freshman year, when I was 18, 19, I wasn't the greatest deer hunter 
Yeah. I wasn't as good as I am now. I'm not that great right now, but still learning obviously, but I didn't really see all that much. And I probably stuck in some areas a little bit too long. Yeah. Um, yeah. What were your, uh, what were your trail cameras telling you? Were, were they showing big bucks? Yeah, they were actually, I had three different eight pointers. Um, nothing massive on those guys. I would say one was around a hundred inches and the other two were 110 around in that vicinity. Yeah. And I had a 12 point that was a very nice bucket. I mean, it was probably 135 if I had to guess. Okay. It was awesome. So that, that kept me motivated. Right. Um, only nighttime pictures on, on all those guys though. Okay. So let's fast forward a couple years and I take it you hunted that piece of property all four years in college and you're still hunting it today, right? Yes, sir. Okay. So how, talk to us about how you learned that particular piece of property, what some of your tactics were, and then kind of, you know, on a high level, share with us some of the success you've had on that property. Yeah. So just growing from my, when I was 18 to by the time I was out of there for college until now, I really got in there, um, did my due diligence in the off season, found those runways that, uh, that, it appeared big bucks were were running. Um, found a lot of the food sources. There were some oak trees on the property too. So when there was a bumper crop of acorns, I figured that could be a good spot. Um, there were some spots where I could, there were some fingers that went into the bedding areas where I could really um, sneak in every once in a while. I kind of saved those spots for closer to the rut and there potentially be some more movement. And, uh, I think it was my sophomore year I shot my first buck with my bow. It was a, uh, he was like a 110 inch eight pointer. <laughs> and to this day, that is, unfortunately, that's the biggest buck that I have arrowed. Not the biggest buck that I've shot at. Um, sad to say my very next year hunting there, I was on one of those fingers right by the bedding. And I had one of my hit list bucks come in. He's a 10 pointer. He's probably 140 inches. Um, one of the biggest bucks that I have been around personally while on stand. And I had my camera all set up. I was filming and everything and thought I was all dialed in, drew back on him, buck fever set in. And I don't know what happened. I just, I think I just pulled the, pulled my pin a little too quickly and shot right over his back. He took off, checked the arrow, made sure I didn't wound him. And that really, that really drove me to, um, pick my spots better, make sure I have just a perfect broadside shot. If I can, if I can present myself with that and really take the time to dial in the, dial in the bow all, all year round, really. Yeah. Was that something that you weren't doing in the past? It was not like shooting all year round. Right. Yeah. It was kind of tough when I was at school. I didn't really have uh, anywhere to go to do that. So I, when I'd go home on the weekends, I'd shoot and I was kind of lackadaisical about that. So gotcha. um, in, in, in recent years, I've become much more diligent with, with staying tuned in. Right. So you ended up missing that buck. Um, 
and it sounds to me like you're starting to learn the property, learn where they're bed, you know, that, that food to bed pattern, the travel routes and whatnot. Um, you missed that buck and anything since then, I mean, any, any, any success on that property as far as the kills concerned? As far as the kills concerned, no. Um, I have seen a few of my hit list bucks. The last two years I saw two different bucks each year gotcha. that were on my hit list. Did not have a shot at them. I mean, I was sort of feeling like Mark Kenyon with Holyfield and he was really, both of those bucks were just really had my number. And I don't know. I tried to move in closer to where they had been walking and then I'd have no sight of them. I got busted by one of them once that was really off putting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been in kind of a slump with, with the bow and haven't been able to, haven't been able to arrow a big one. Yeah. So years, do yeah. you spend a majority of the archery season on that farm or do you go to other pieces of property? Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm relocated back down to Southeast Wisconsin now. So I don't get up to that green Bay location as much as I was in college. Um, I'm probably up there three, three to five times a year now. So that one's, I'm not up there as often. Gotcha. I do have, yeah, I do have a spot in down here in Southeast Wisconsin that I hunt and it's a nice little, it's a nice uh, little sanctuary. It's a lot of doe. I don't really get too many, too many bucks cruising through during the route. We get some nice ones, but a lot of, a lot of nighttime pictures. Yeah. And I'm trying to focus in on, on, um, just really figuring out that, that, uh, track of land. Yeah. And then, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, we, have some land up in northern Wisconsin um, where the deer population tends to sort of ebb and flow um, with the with the wolf wolf population yeah. kind of swinging through it seems like they the wolves will go through one area and sort of decimate decimate the herd a little bit and then they'll just make their rounds around the whole the whole state gotcha. uh, northern part of the state at least I mean but yeah, it's up there is pretty tough hunting and the, the rough, rough winters when we have a lot of snow and it's just freezing cold. We, that actually does, does a number on the herd as well. Right. Right. All right. So as a bow hunter, right. I mean, you haven't had the greatest success, you know, you know, no one's going to look at you and go, Oh my God, he's the best bow hunter ever. So with that said though, what do you think that or what do you think you need to work on as a bow hunter to be more successful? Yeah, I think I really need to think out my spot, um, ensure that I have good shooting lanes for those spots. Um, and just really, really dial in where I think that deer is going to go and be smart about it. You know, find that, find that corridor that they're going to run those pinch points and just spend, I need to spend a little bit more time in the woods. I think At the past few years with, with getting into the working world and everything, it's, I haven't really focused as much on that. I just need to, I just need to set aside those weeks and um, just really dial into what I've been listening to on your guys' podcast, what I've read and just get down to the basics really. And, you're talking about scouting, right? Locating what yeah, you feel is, is the 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 where the deer are hanging out. 
Right. How much thought have you put into access and how you access um, what you feel are those good stand locations? Yeah, that's that's one thing that I'm just starting to utilize in the last couple of years here. I remember um, probably when I was around 18 and with my bow stand up in northern Wisconsin, I kind of had an aha moment. I was I was walking into my stand, and the way I walk in, it was, it was a ladder stand set up, and the way I walk in, I'm walking directly towards the ladder stand. I climb up my ladder stand, and once I sit down, I'm looking exactly where I just walked from. And with that, I'm clearly dragging my scent right through that area. I'm, I stepped right over a deer trail, and... Um, like I said, that was a light bulb moment for me. Like, oh, maybe I should take that extra 15, 20 minute walk just to swing around and uh, just make sure that I'm I'm accessing my stands um, smarter. Right, right. And I think that what's gonna ha- what you're gonna find is when you start doing just those little things. Right, it's the little thing like walking around something instead of walking through it or really focusing on your access uh, route and, you know, refining your tree stand locations and, um, you know, knowing what the, the wind is doing, not necessarily 30 yards from the stand, but at the same time, like 100 yards from the stand. I think if you refine all those little things, you're going to start seeing more deer. Exactly. So, man, it's and it's always cool to to be in a situation that you're in where you you can really start learning, and then everything that you're learning it turns into results, and it can be like, okay, well, uh, this works or this didn't work, because what a lot of people do is they they think they can listen to a podcast like mine or or whatever podcast or read a magazine article or listen, watch a video. And that person can tell somebody else, you need to do this. You need to do this. But that person doesn't hunt your farm. So they don't know what the wind is doing down range. They don't know where these bedding areas are at. So if you're, if you're talking in absolutes, you know, people, people are like, well, why isn't this working for me? Why isn't this working for me? Uh, when you have to be able to take the principles, I think a lot of people don't think in principles. You got to take those principles and apply it to your property. Uh, and I'm just going off on a tangent now, so I apologize for that. No, that it absolutely it it makes sense. Absolutely. So, all right. So, you're. It sounds to me like you're you're in your as far as your hunting career is concerned. You're trying to refine your your approach towards killing deer is that accurate yeah absolutely i'm i'm at the point where i don't need to be personally i don't want to be shooting those 110 120 inch bucks i'm i'm really out there looking to looking to hunt a mature white-tailed deer right right and that's the step now how many deer have you killed with your bow with my bow, I've killed four deer. I've okay. killed two bucks and two doe. Now, I'm not telling you Small, how to, two smaller bucks. I'm not going to tell you how to hunt, but I will say this: this is one thing that I've learned over the years, and that is don't be afraid just to kill something because I think what that leads up to is you being more comfortable 
behind the bow, pulling it back, being comfortable in the moment of truth. Because I did something similar to what you did back in the day when I started. I started passing all these deer, all these deer that, you know, were bigger than anything I had killed in the past, thinking I needed to be some big big buck killer, big, you know, mature buck killer. And I didn't have any experience killing regular deer. So don't be afraid to stair step. You know, I think a lot of people, they try to jump right in from, you know, if it's brown, it's down to, I'm only going to kill six year old, 200 inches. You know what I mean? And it, it's just, it's not realistic. Yeah, absolutely. You get, that way you get more experience and you're ready when that moment of truth comes. Absolutely. Um, you've been there plenty of times and yeah, you won't be shaking as much. And, yeah. yeah, no, I absolutely hear you. Yeah. All right, now, whitetails, right? Now, you have you sent me two other pictures. Uh, one is a big mule deer, and one is a big elk. How long ago were, uh, were those hunts, and why did you decide to, you know, start expanding your hunting opportunities to the west? Yeah, those, those two animals were taken in 2016. That was... Right, um, right when I had graduated college, um, my dad sort of just asked me one day. He's like, "Hey, what do you think about a about an elk hunt out west?" And I was it was just absolutely a dream come to you know, just watching watching the Outdoor Channel and Sportsman's Channel and seeing what else is beyond that exact area where you've grown up hunting, all the new terrain. Um, it was just really it re- had really piqued my interest and. Um, something that I was a dream hunt. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where, where did these, uh, hunts take place? Yeah, this hunt, um, for the elk and mule deer, that was in, oh, just Northwest of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Okay. So Northwest of Cheyenne, Wyoming. So that's like right somewhere in the central part of the state, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, did you, did you guys use an outfitter public land permission? How'd that all work? Yeah. So we had permission through, um, a contact that my dad had, had just found out through networking Yep. and he had access to, um, a few different ranches in that area. And what I didn't know going into it was that ranches out there, were anywhere from 500 to 5,000 acres. I right. mean, they're Huge. just massive tracts of land. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And the terrain on those branches are nothing like the Midwest either. It's it's rolling hills. It's mountainous. It's it's really incredible. So, I I mean, I could look at pictures as much as I wanted to. I could listen listen to people talk about their hunts as much as possible and there's nothing you can do to really prepare yourself to get out there. Just that shock, that wow factor of how intense and how beautiful that landscape is out there. Nice. Nice. So for the, for these rifle hunts, was this something that you had to put preference points into or were they all over the counter or, or like first time draw odds? Yeah, these were, we were lucky enough to be in zones where they were first time draw odds. Gotcha. Gotcha. And did you have to pay like a trespasser fee or um, pay the landowner uh, a fee to hunt on their property? We did not have to pay the landowner fee. No, yeah, just the uh, just the non-resident license fees. Gotcha. Well, that's really, man, that's awesome. 
I love I love connections like that. You know, you know, public land is awesome, but and you know, I'm a huge advocate for it. But if you can get lucky and go take advantage of some private ground, man, you know, go do it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, and I we do hunt a lot of public land too, and there's just such gratification that comes out of that doing it all yourself and um but chances are on private land i mean in in pressured areas your your odds might be a little bit better yeah absolutely so let's talk about these hunts man Uh, was it all in like a a one-week period that you were able to harvest both these animals yeah it was it was actually a a three-day period it was Wow. It was run and gun and it was, it was unbelievable. So walk us through there. All right. So you and your dad hop in the truck and you start driving to Wyoming. Walk us through that, that three day, that four or five day period where you're driving out, you have three days worth of hunts and then you drive back. Walk us through that. Yeah. So we actually had, we actually had uh, been working on the, for game to operations during the, during the NFL football season there. So we, we flew out to Colorado and then drove up to Wyoming. Gotcha. So it was a much, it was a much quicker, much quicker ride out there than, um, had we driven, um, but just eager the whole way. I mean, just talking about our trip, what, what could potentially happen. Hopefully we'd be coming home with, with, uh, four animals, coolers full of meat, to feed us for quite some time and um yeah we get to the airport get all our get all our gear ready and get to the hotel talk to talk to our connection out there that evening once we get to the hotel he tells us where to show up in the morning and we got some shut eye probably got about five hours of sleep and i don't think i slept a wink that night just <laughs> extremely excited for the morning yeah yeah. So you wake, you get five hours of sleep. Now, were you in a cabin? Were you stayed at somebody's house? Yeah, we actually stayed at a hotel um, okay. that was outside of Cheyenne. We had a little bit of a drive in the morning, but um, I mean, there's essentially no traffic out in Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> so right. that the driving really wasn't an issue and well worth it once we got to, once we got to the properties that we were we were hunting on. So you didn't even scout it at all. You just showed up to the property and got out of your truck and you're like, well, here we are. Yep. Essentially. Yeah. We, we were, we had a game plan going in that we would just stick on the outskirts and do a lot of glassing. Um, we had some ideas of where the animals might be. So we just kind of, we stuck with that, with those ideas, did our glassing. And, um, once we, once we were able to locate the animals that we considered taking, we then we struck. So was it was it just you and your dad, or was the landowner out there with you? Um, it was the it was our friend that was with us as well. Okay. Uh, the connection that that knew the landowner um, for for many years, gotcha. and he he does he does his fair amount of hunting out there as well. So okay, so when you were when you you get out there. Was it dark when you pulled into the farm or what was it? Yeah, it was dark. And it, this was, 
um, mid-October. It was dark, and there was a little bit of snow on the ground that they had had. It was probably around 25 degrees, so pretty chilly. Um, and there's, it can get pretty breezy out there as well. We had about a 20-mile-an-hour wind that first morning, um, and we were we were going to be chasing mule deer right away. Um, that was, that was our game plan on that specific ranch that we were on. Okay. We were told the, the mule deer resided there pretty, pretty thick. Yeah. So as the sun comes up, man, you, you really don't know what to expect other than what this guy has told you, you know, the sun starts coming up, it's get, it gets light. It's almost like you're on a completely new planet compared to, you know, uh, Wisconsin. Did you instantly start seeing, what you were after or did it take some time to, to get them located? Yeah, it took a little bit of time. Um, we were, we were near some rocky outcrop areas and, uh, they just weren't, they weren't where we had expected. So we did, we did a little bit of walking around, um, probably for hour and a half, two hours. And we came up to, Oh, man, this was probably like a 40-acre area where it was just like 500-foot-tall ridges and sagebrush, and they were in there very thick. And we actually bumped out a few of them that we that were absolutely trophies and kind of bummed out. We we didn't know they'd be they'd be that tight to the outskirts of those ridges, and so we backed off, did some more glassing. Um, just ensured that we were out of sight of those big, there were some big muleys out there yeah. and um, located the animals that we wanted to take and we went after them. Yeah. So we're, I take it from looking at the pictures, obviously uh, you guys were rifle hunting because of it was in October, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay. So what kind of strategy did you have to do um, from where you located these mule deers to where you were at? I mean, did you have to just get closer for the shot or did you have to work your way around some terrain features? Did you have to wait them out? Did you have to come up behind them? Yeah, we definitely, um, kind of put the strike on them. So they were sitting pretty tight and the sagebrush that we were, that we came up on, um, was probably about three, three and a half feet, four feet off the ground. So we were able to sort of crouch and slowly make our way towards them. It was sort of a plateau on top of the ridge that we were, that we were approaching them on. So we were pretty much on level ground with them. And since we did have the rifles, we, uh, we were pretty comfortable shooting at about 300 yards. We had, we had done a lot of shooting, um, all summer and September, just getting ready, um, getting ready for the trip. Yeah. So that was sort of a game plan. We could, we didn't have to get, you know, 190 yards, Yeah. hundred yards from them. We can, we feel comfortable with what we have. So right, right. Um, I was up first, I was up first and there were two very nice mule deer. Um, probably about, I think it was 310 yards away. And I got on the, uh, our friend and my father were both still crouching. We had our binocs on them and I got the shooting sticks up and stood up. And as soon as I stood up, those two bucks, uh, they were looking, um, 
so they're a profile, so I couldn't really see their, the spread on them or anything. And those two bucks stood up and looked right at us, and those were the biggest set of horns that I had seen <laughs> in my life. Just, just unbelievable. Sun glistening off of them. Right. And it was, it was a sight. Thankfully, everything happened quick. Otherwise, I might, my heart started to pump, and adrenaline was pumping pretty fast. So they stood up. I was right on them. Um, he's almost perfectly broadside and 300 yards away pulled the trigger took a deep breath and he was down thankfully put a good shot on him and um, that other mule deer who's almost almost looked like a twin of the one i had just shot he was just he just kind of stood there didn't know what was going on and we figured hey dad get up if you can get on the shooting sticks in time get a shot Um, and by the time he had gotten on his sticks he um, that mule deer had started to bound off. Yeah. So we didn't have an opportunity there. So, so day one, you drop, you drop this mule deer and I don't know anything about mule deer per se, but I know that what I'm looking at in, in the uh, trophy picture, it's gigantic. Did you happen to measure him out? Yeah. I mean, for the area we were in, that was a very nice mule deer. He was, I think he was around 158 was okay. what he scored out at. That I know that picture does him justice very well. Um, I know you get down, you get down in the New Mexico area um, and some other areas near Colorado as well. They get they get absolutely massive. But for the area of Wyoming that we were in, that was a very respectable mule deer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um, so when you were seeing these mule deer, how what was the quantity of mule deer that you were seeing? I know, like obviously, there's some good quality bucks in there. But um, what what were the numbers like, and was this the biggest the biggest one of the bunch, or did you see bigger mule mule deer out there? Yeah, so we did see some bigger mule deer. We were just unable to get on them. They were they were pretty skittish. Um, and as far as numbers go, um, just whitetail hunting back in Wisconsin, um, down in southeastern Wisconsin, and the Green Bay properties that we hunt. We, we see a lot of deer. I mean, it's probably, we probably see one to five deer every time we go out, sometimes more, obviously. And then the northern Wisconsin property, uh, depending on the year, like I mentioned before, the winter kill, the predator kill for that year, it's, it can be tough going. You maybe see one, one to one or three deer every time you go out. Um, but the amount of mule deer we saw, it was something that I'd, was not expecting it couldn't prepare myself for we probably saw around 50 to 60 mule deer that day it was it was nuts wow wow that's awesome uh all right so you go out and you hammer this beautiful mule deer your first day out on your first western hunt ever um and uh, what was the rest of the day like or the week or, or the next day? Did you try to get your dad a mule deer? Was your dad successful or did you guys just kind of instantly transition to elk at that point? Yeah. Then, so we kind of said from the get go that we were going to take turns um, just so we could really enjoy each other's, each other's hunts. And re- pretty much as soon as I got my mule deer, we got right after, um, we got right after trying to get my dad a mule deer so that evening actually we lucked out again and we were sort of heading back towards the truck 
and going to make our way out of there. It was getting closer to evening. Um, and we come down to this little river bottom and we poke our head around the corner and about uh, 60 to 80 yards away were six mule deer standing there and there's one shooter in there. Luckily they didn't see us. Oh man, that was, it was a very close encounter. And right next to the, to that river bottom, there was probably about a a hundred foot tall hill that was about 60 yards away from them. So we had a game plan just to backtrack from where we were and then walk all the way around, go to the very top of that hill, poke our heads over and see if you can luck out and get a shot. And he did. We got to the top of that hill. He got on the sticks as soon as he could. Those deer looked over and he put a great shot on them and dropped them. Wow. So our first day out there, two mule deer. I mean, it's, you really couldn't trot it up any better. So uh, let's see here. Whose was bigger? Who had, who shot the bigger mule deer? I shot the bigger mule deer. Okay. <laughs> so do you and your dad give each other shit for that? Uh, well, I shot the Absolutely. bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. So day you know day one was obviously excess and if i had to guess that by this point the entire trip was a success already but you had an elk tag in your pocket too right that's correct yeah so were there correct so were there elk on this property already or did you have to go to a different part of the ranch on the property we were on we had to go to a separate part of the ranch okay so walk us through this, uh, your successful elk hunt. Yeah. So my dad was actually first to go on this elk. So he, we, we kind of went around to, to the different side of the ranch there. And on this area, this was more of that, uh, rocky outcrop, um, almost getting towards the mountainous side of things, really steep hills, um, still plenty of valleys for us that we can walk comfortably. I mean, there's no switchbacks or anything like that. And we just start glassing, glassing, glassing hours go by. And we, we decide to pack up and move a little bit. So we do some more walking and on the side of this hill, we see two beautiful bull elk that are just bedded down, um, basking in the sun. This is on day two. This is probably around, um, 10 at 11 in the morning. And these, these are bulls that we're going to go after. So we come up with a game plan. They're up, they're probably 500 feet above us elevation wise. So we wanted to, to sneak sort of on the backside of this backside of this big ridge if we could, and then flank them from either side really. And, just try and hide behind rocks and trees and do as, do as best as we can to get, get close enough for a good ethical shot. And we get to the side of this ridge and we get our binocs up and, um, our buddy says, Oh my gosh, there's four elk here, you guys. And then my dad, he's looking at his binocs as well. He says, I see another one. So there were five elks all grouped together, five bull elk grouped together on this ridge. And, he got his sights on the biggest one and just took him down. I mean, it was, it was pretty textbook. So about a hundred yard shot he had on that one. So your dad took the first shot on the, on this elk. That's correct. Yeah. Man, it sounds like you guys 
no offense, but it sounds like you guys were in like a zoo. This it was just like, I, it, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was truly unbelievable because my, my buddies and I now that we're, that we have jobs and everything and we're planning all these public land hunts that we want to go on out West. And I have a feeling that I'm never going to experience anything like this again. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad I'm dead, but yeah, absolutely. It's like that kid. Um, I think I'm going to get this kid on, on the podcast too. He shot like a 230 inch whitetail buck. And oh my I'm just like, what do you do from there, man? What do you do? I, I it's like, it's Shoot a 240. Yeah. That's the only. <laughs> yeah. You got to try. <laughs> yeah. So your dad. That's sh- incredible. Your dad shot this elk. Um, and then, I mean, with all these elk in the area, what'd you do? Just pick the gun up and, and shoot one of the other ones? No, we definitely tried. But, the, I mean, it was with how close we were to them on the side of that, on the side of that big ridge, it was pretty thick. And they knew exactly where they were going. I mean, they had their escape route perfect and we didn't get another shot. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable taking a running shot, um, on an elk. I hadn't really, I mean, that was my first time out there. Right. And I actually have never had a running shot on, on a white tail or anything either. I don't know if that, if that's really deemed an ethical shot, but we, uh, we just kind of watched those guys run off and we got after, um, just gutting that elk and hide and everything there and packing them out of there back to our truck. And by the time we were done with all that, it was probably around three thirty. So we went out, did some more glassing and didn't have any luck the rest of that evening, seeing any, anything that we wanted to go after. So we went back into town for the night and game plan was to head out to that same, same spot of the ranch on the same area and try and locate those four bulls because there was another another bull that was in there that was phenomenal. Yeah. So you uh, and what did your dad's bull score? If did you score it? His yeah, yeah his bull was three ten. It was it was a beautiful bull. Wow. All right. So the next day, uh, you go out. I mean, this is day three. <laughs> this is day three now, and in two days, you've killed two mule deer and a. Uh, in a, in a, in a big elk. So basically at this point, you guys are doing more gutting and cleaning and meat processing than actually <laughs> hunting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The hours we racked up, racked up doing all that was definitely outweighed the, outweighed the hunting at that point. <laughs> yeah. All right. So day three, uh, it's, you're up to bat for an elk. Uh, how's that go down? Yes, sir. So we we were unable to locate those the four other bull that we had seen. Um, we kind of suspected they may have split up. Uh, we didn't really know for sure. And we were just doing our glassing and just walking, driving around the property where we could and did some more glassing, more glassing. And as we're driving, I mean, this is, this is definitely the, the spot of the trip. Um, my dad goes, hold on a sec, stop. And he spots an elk. Um, we're on one ridge, and there's a big valley in between us and another ridge, and it was probably 800 yards away. And he, he spotted it with his binocs as we're driving. It was a great spot. And 
because I think I see something over there. So we stop, we get our, we get our eyes on him. And he was one of the bulls that was with that group of five yesterday. Oh, nice. And, um, we wanted the game plan to go knock him down. Um, and our buddy goes, well, I'm going to assume you can't take an 800 yard, 45 mile per hour crosswind shot. And I said, is that a rhetorical <laughs> question? <laughs> but absolutely, absolutely not. Um, so we, we go ahead and game plan. Um, we get down in the Valley as far as we could. Thankfully, uh, it was pretty, um, vegetation was pretty thick on the side of that ridge and there were some huge boulders. So he was tucked in there pretty good. Um, probably shook up from the day before a little bit. And our only choice was to get pretty close to him. And so we make our way down from the ridge we we're in. We go through the Valley, um, had to cross the river. Thankfully it was pretty, pretty shallow. And we get probably five, uh, 400 yards away from this elk down in the Valley. We got eyes on him, and there's really only one pathway to get up to him that we can take. And it's going to be a hundred yard shot to 60 yard shot that we, that we could foresee. So we slowly walk up, take our time i mean we probably took 40 minutes just to play it safe and we didn't want to spook them we wanted to get this done right away and we're about 60 yards away and i poke my head up and he's just bedded down and again i have the rifle in my hand i was not anticipating a 60 yard shot at this guy and i get on my sticks as soon as as soon as i got my crosshairs on him he stands up and much like the the mule deer, his profile was to me. He was perfect broadside, and his massive antlers just turn and look at me. I'd never seen anything like that. <laughs> that was it was unbelievable, just jaw dropping. And again, thankfully it happened so quick. I just uh, dropped the hammer on him. He took off running down the ridge, so we take off after him. Um, I was almost certain I put a really good hit on him but we just want to take off after him, see where he was headed. And we get to the to the location where he was bedded and he's standing there about 50 yards away broadside again, just looking at us. So, um, I'm all ready. I took my safety off and took a deep breath, pulled the trigger again. I felt like I hit him again and he took off again. I couldn't believe it after putting two shots into him. Yeah. Um, and then we get to the, he runs down into the Valley. We get to the, a nice vantage point um, on the ridge and he's piled up down there about a hundred yards away. And it was just, it was exhausting as we were running after him, but it was, it was an unbelievable, unbelievable hunt, man. So you got him and uh, when you, you know, walking up on a whitetail is one thing, even, even walking up on the mule deer that you shot, you know, obviously I take it. It was a little bit bigger than, uh, a, a regular whitetail, but then you're, now you're walking up onto a horse with antlers. Describe that. Feeling. Exactly. Yeah, it was, uh, it was obviously nothing, nothing I had ever felt before. Um, nothing could have prepared me for it. I've, I've gotten the shakes just shaking after, shooting a whitetail after catching a big fish this was this was just unbelievable i couldn't i couldn't speak words and i'm having difficulty <laughs> even now speaking speaking to that feeling because it's it's really one of a kind right and i just feel so so 
lucky and thankful to be able to have that feeling because it's you're right it is a just a massive animal and a majestic animal at that too yeah. and you know it's gonna it's gonna fill your freezer and yeah it's just it's an incredible feeling so you guys left uh wyoming with two mule deer two elk um so did you have to buy more coolers in wyoming to pack all the meat up and take it home or <laughs> No, thankfully we we came prepared. We brought five seventy-five quart coolers out with us, and the only thing we did have to purchase we got some dry ice from uh, one of the local supermarkets in Cheyenne just to ensure that our meat stayed pretty cool. But uh, we just threw all those coolers in the back of the back of the pickup truck. We had to put one in the cab too because we had a little we had a smaller six cooler. Um, but yeah, that was. That was an incredible amount of meat that we brought back. Too. Did you have to buy a deep freezer when you got buy, home? We had to buy another freezer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we had to buy another freezer when we got home. <laughs> Big enough for the for the Wyoming hunt. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> well, you're well on your way, man. And the good thing about it is you're 24 years old, uh, and you're now you're you know you're you're balls deep in hunting, so to speak, and you're going to be doing all these awesome things like you know, hunting, hunting out West and stuff. I'm, I'm about 15 years behind you roughly in as, or, and we're still kind of, and we're on the same page as far as, you know, this new kind of adventure that we're taking, um, as you know, expanding into the, the Western realm. But, um, how big was your elk? My elk was smaller than my dad's. Okay. Um, He scored, yeah, he scored around 290. Um, he didn't have his G2, 3, 4s, and 5s weren't as long, um, but he had an incredible spread on him. He was he was a cool bull. Awesome. I mean, it was just, just an incredible experience out there. Awesome. So let's see here. Do you have that mule deer and this elk hanging in your house? Well, I I'm living in an apartment right now, and – they technically don't allow that, but um, I would like to have those hung up in there. I probably should. They're yeah. actually hanging up uh, at my parents' house in his in my dad's garage right now. Okay, they don't allow like animals on the wall, or they don't allow you to hang like things on the wall. I, for some reason, I asked them that question, and for some reason, I mean, you, you can hang pictures and whatnot on the wall, and this is actually a pet-friendly complex, but they said that I could not hang taxidermy on the wall. I don't understand it, um, but I just might have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's crazy, man. Well, it sounds like you had a one hell of a trip. You're, you know, you're a true outdoorsman. Uh, man, thanks for uh, stopping by and, and BSing with me today. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. It was um, it was definitely a pleasure and big fan of your podcast. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Craig for coming on and taking time out of his day to uh, BS with me. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Ozonix, Wasp, Ripcord, Exodus, Deer Lab, Lone Wolf. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Uh, they truly make this possible. Please share this podcast. I mean, if you think that the content that you're listening to on this podcast is not only entertaining, 
but educational. Share this with your friends. Share the Sportsman's Nation podcast network with your friends through social media. I mean, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Those are the two big ones. And don't forget to visit all of the podcasts and the blog at sportsmensnation.com. Tons of great content there and more to come every single week. What else, man? What else? What else? What else? What else? Thank you. Thank you, you, you. You are the you are the engine that really makes this podcast fire and run on all cylinders. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Last but not least, man, go leave a review, right? Go leave a review. And then that right there lets other people know that this podcast in the Sportsman's Nation is a true I mean, it's it's the real deal, right? We're up there with uh, with all the rest of them as far as quality content is concerned. So, with all that said, guys, happy hump day. If you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>